It's December 2022. Welcome to Muse News, the BCMA's monthly museum sector news podcast. Each month, we recap some of the latest breaking news, happenings, and announcements from museums, galleries, and heritage organizations across BC and beyond. I'm Leah Patterson, reporting with BCMA co-anchor Ryan Hunt. Join us as we explore the latest Muse News. Over to you, Ryan. The Gabriola Island Museum requests funding for sustainable operations. Running the Gabriola Museum isn't sustainable without a paid executive director. That's the message from the Gabriola Historical and Museum Society's board, who has put in a request to the Regional District of Nanaimo to increase the funding it provides. From 2020 to 2022, RDN provided the society $16,000 annually for operating costs. Prior to the current three-year agreement, the Society received $12,000 annually. Now the Society is requesting a three-year assistance agreement for $25,000 per year, which would pay the salary for a part-time executive director. The Society's president, Joan Merrifield, has volunteered to carry the workload of an executive director for the past five years. But wearing many hats has become burdensome, and thus far no one has expressed interest in succeeding Merrifield in the volunteer role. If the society could hire an executive director, that person could devote time to seeking other grants as well as fundraising, managing the budget, and focusing on delivering the strategic plan priorities, such as long-term sustainability of the museum and working with the Sinaimux First Nation to ensure protocols are being followed. The board and volunteer base is aging, Merrifield added, putting into question the long-term future of the society's activities. Quote, It's really challenging to run a museum with that little money. And we have a lot of volunteers, but we need some people who work for the museum and have the longevity, have the long-term plan, and aren't volunteers coming and going. Thanks, Ryan. Iconic Vancouver Museum shutting down for most of 2023. The University of British Columbia's iconic Museum of Anthropology is going to be relatively empty for much of 2023. This is because it is shutting down on January 15th for seismic upgrades. Quote, MOA will be closed until late 2023 to accelerate the completion of the seismic upgrades to the Great Hall and conduct other building improvements, end quote. Construction has been going on since 2021, but will expand early next year. The renovations are being done in a way that will retain the look of famed Vancouver architect Arthur Erickson's design, but will make it more resilient to earthquakes. The museum is taking the opportunity to do additional upgrades as well, like lighting, landscaping, and other aesthetic and safety improvements. This was not the original plan, which was to remain open through the upgrades. Ultimately, UBC states the closure will result in faster construction timelines and a sooner return for the public to the museum. While the museum will be closed to the general public, Indigenous communities will still have access to the collections. And while the physical space will be closed, the museum will still operate special virtual events. Until mid-January, it will remain open. Thank you, Leah. Scottish Museum to Return Stolen Totem Pole in the New Year Lobbying efforts in the summer of 2022 to have a totem pole returned from a Scottish museum seem to have paid off for the Nishka Nation. The National Museum of Scotland has had a totem pole for nearly a century, but on December 1st, its board voted to return it. Quote, I felt really relieved when I heard the news, said Amy Parent, a member of Nishka Nation and professor of Indigenous Governance at Simon Fraser University. Quote, to know that justice has prevailed for our ancestors, in particular, our great-great-grandmother, Joan Moody, as well as fallen warrior Sa'awit, and that we have the opportunity now to bring this pole home 
and the living spirit of our ancestors back to Nishka lands. In a press release, Simuget Ni Siju, or Chief Earl Stevens, said in their culture, the totem pole is still alive and returning it is like returning home a family member. Quote, in Nisca culture, we believe that this pole is alive with the spirits of our ancestors. After nearly a hundred years, we are finally able to bring our dear relatives back home to rest on Nishka lands. He added that future generations will get a chance to be connected to the memorial pole and to learn its history. Reconciliation in the private art world. How Taku River Tlingit brought home their robe. A 140-year-old Tlingit robe, labeled Lot 201, was up for auction online, and the community it came from was determined to have it back. But there was a five-figure catch. By the time the community member Wayne Carlick saw it on November 29th, bids had already topped $15,000. Because the seller was listed as an anonymous private collection, there was no way of appealing to have the robe repatriated. This robe was a Chilkat blanket dating back to at least 1880. Made of complex weaves of mountain goat wool and yellow cedar bark, Chilkat robes took upwards of like one year to complete and were reserved for high-ranking dignitaries of indigenous communities in BC, the Yukon, and Alaska. The elaborate robes became so coveted by museums and collectors that few historical examples remain in the communities where they originated. Though the name of the weaver isn't listed online, Mr. Carlick thought there was a good chance that the robe had been made by Enisalaga, or Mary Ebbets Hunt, a Tlingit woman considered to be the finest of all Chilkat weavers. Peter Wright, a heli-skiing company operator and gold miner who is from nearby community of Atlin, offered to bid and pay the auction price as long as the First Nation paid him back. With the nation in agreement, Mr. Wright began submitting bids. By December 2nd, the price had doubled. Mr. Carlick noted the importance of the robe, saying, quote, This blanket would have performed ancestral ceremonies during its life. Through ceremonies, it would have the spirit of our ancestors in it. I had a belief inside me that this was a special robe and it should come home, end quote. For decades, museums and public art collections have been under pressure to repatriate Indigenous artifacts. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission called on Canadian museums to comply with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which requires countries to provide redress for stolen cultural, intellectual, religious, and spiritual property. But the high-priced trade in cultural items from private collections has escaped the same level of scrutiny. We are constantly being outbid, says Jisgang Nika Collison, executive director and curator at the Haida Gwaii Museum and co-author of the Indigenous Repatriation Handbook. And we shouldn't really have to be buying our things back, she says. Ms. Collison said the museum has fostered close ties with private donors who can buy items at auction. But she said she would like to see the federal and provincial governments help address issues related to private artifact sales. Why are we having to deal with that, she said. Canada should be figuring this out. The auctioneer, Waddington's, said it strives to supply all available provenance information to potential buyers. In this case, the robe was being sold as part of a private estate sale based in Ontario. Waddington's had inquiries from several buyers interested in buying the robe to donate it to unspecified groups. It is unclear if any of these buyers were among the ones driving up the robe's price. Waddington's president, Duncan McLean, said that during the auction, the company was unaware of the robe's connection to the Taku River Tlingit Nation. He noted that there were at least eight Chilkat weavings sold at auction in 2022. Incomplete provenance is common among Indigenous works, said Ben Lauder, a heritage archaeologist working for the Taku River Tlingit. Elders have told him stories of deceitful fur traders and gold seekers 
who turned up after waves of smallpox and other epidemics to offer alcohol in return for priceless regalia. They would sell the items to dealers in bulk, withholding the provenance, making the goods tough to trace and even tougher to have returned. Quote, this is an international reconciliation issue for sure, and it is absurd that a tiny and remote nation like Taku River Tlingit should be forced to pay art collector prices for something that was most certainly collected with a colonial trade advantage, said Mr. Lauder. By the time the auction ended, the final cost had hit $46,500, more than double the estimates. The winning buyer was Mr. Wright. He financed the purchase in part with gold, a nod to his Atlan gold mining roots. On December 8th at a downtown Vancouver Holiday Inn, Mr. Carlick finally had the chance to lay his eyes on the Chilcat robe. It was everything he had hoped for. He still doesn't know where all the money to pay back Mr. Wright will come from. A fundraiser organized by Mr. Lauder on the online platform GoFundMe has generated almost $6,000. Mr. Carlick is eager to get the robe home, where it will be welcomed with dances, songs, and ceremonies. But he wishes it could have taken a different route. Quote, it hurts us to see precious artifacts from First Nations families being auctioned off, he says. Whistler's Museum is one step closer to getting a much-needed building upgrade, thanks to a new deal signed by the Resort Municipality of Whistler. On December 6th, Whistler Council approved a 60-year lease agreement that enables the Whistler Museum and Archive Society to initiate a fundraising campaign for the capital required to construct and equip a new museum in its current location. Quote, we are excited to see the process for building a new museum facility moving forward. The Museum Board of Directors has been working towards this goal since 2014, and seeing a real progress is great, said Museum Executive Director Brad Nichols. Since 2009, the Whistler Museum has been housed in a small, 280-square-meter, semi-permanent structure of conjoined trailers located on a portion of Lot 20 at 4333 Main Street, adjacent to Florence Peterson Park and the Whistler Public Library. Creating a new building has been in the works for almost a decade. First proposed in 2014, the museum's need for space has grown over the last few years as archival space hit capacity, resulting in many museum items, such as Whistler Pioneer, Myrtle Phillips Canoe, not being displayed. The proposed building will be three times the size of the current building, 927 square meters. The two-story building will include display areas, a foyer, a reception desk, and a gift shop that will also serve as a gathering place for groups and events. Additionally, the building will include the structural ability to add a third story if the museum needs to expand at a future date. With the expansion, the museum estimates that visitor numbers will double compared to 2019, when 14,410 people visited the exhibits. The expanded gift shop and venue space will also provide the museum with additional income. From outcasts to mainstream, BC Museum showcases the evolution of snowboarding. A Qualicum Beach, BC man has created a museum that celebrates the sport of snowboarding, from the early skateboards for snow prototypes to the first designs that helped launch a new winter sport. I don't know where they came from, but there's an early board called the Snurfer. Peter Ducamon told Global's This is BC, while giving a tour of the display in his Skull Skates store. The museum documents the evolution of what is now one of the world's most popular winter sports. Peter laughs and says, Skiers didn't like us too much in the beginning. They really didn't like us. In the early 1980s, Dukeman and others were continually denied access at BC ski hills. He recalls, Nine out of ten people we called would say, 
yeah, because you guys suck. And we said, okay, I guess that's a reason. It was that skateboarding stigma all over again. Like these are weird bad guys or something. Without lift tickets, most of these early snowboarders days were spent working to get back up the mountain. That changed in 1983 when they found a way to get around the insurance issue at Hemlock Valley. Our insurance states that you have to load and unload with skis. Well, we said, if we did that with skis and then rode our snowboards down, would that be acceptable? And they said, sure, we'll sell you a ticket. He and his friends used the old super slider snow skates to get around that technicality and threw them in their backpacks before snowboarding down. They were just glorified plastic slippers, Dukeman said, pointing to a couple of pairs hanging on the wall. By the late 1880s, BC resorts were allowing snowboarders. The museum showcases some of the early contraptions that plowed the way for future generations that fell in love with the sport, and ultimately, Harmony on the Hill. Eventually, snowboarders and skiers started to get along, because what are you going to do? You can't keep fighting forever, he says. Now it's time for Who's News on Muse News. This segment features your submitted staffing changes and retirements from across the province. We only have one announcement today. After 29 years as manager of collections and programming, Angela Eastman is retiring from the Kitimat Museum and Archives. As executive director, Louise Avery notes, quote, it is a sad moment to say farewell to our constant companion at the Kitimat Museum and Archives. We will miss Angela's patience, pragmatism, critical eye, troubleshooting abilities, and generous spirit. She is always willing to find a way around the obstacles and stay focused and calm at any critical moment. Thank you, Angela, for all your years of service, end quote. The museum staff hope to welcome someone equally as wonderful to the position. Back to you, Ryan. I'm Ryan Hunt, and this was Muse News for December 2022. On behalf of the council and staff at the BCMA, we hope you have a happy holiday season, and we'll see you again in the Muse New Year.